I've not met you. My name's Dan Steele. I'm a pastor here at Maudlam Road. Um, I've just come back from sabbatical, so it was a real joy to come back and not find that you had constructed some kind of golden calf. Um, that was a fear. Uh, let, me, let me pray as we begin. Jesus told his people parables. In his teaching, he said, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed as he was scattering the seeds. Some fell among the path and the birds came and ate it up. And some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they didn't bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60 and some 100 times. Father in heaven, as we hear your words this morning, we pray that it would be fruitful. We pray that it would not be snatched away. We pray that it would not be shallow. We pray that thorns wouldn't come and squeeze it, but that you would bring forth a harvest in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So far in Exodus, there have been a few moments of grumbling. But in a broad sense, it's been a relatively happy time. Largely speaking, the people of God have listened to what God has told them to do, and they've done it. They have been freed from Egypt, so they might go and they might worship him. They might be rescued for relationship, do you remember? And they've seen him powerfully at work on the way. He's defeated the Egyptians and their so-called gods. He's, he's rescued his people from sin and slavery. He's taken them through the Red Sea. He's provided what they needed each step of the way. There's been daily bread. There's been food. There's been water. There's been protection. He's given them the law and the covenant. He has been with his people. Indeed, they, he has given them his very presence as they have traveled with him. And suddenly we reach a huge crunching gear change here in Exodus 32 and 33. It is an almighty mess. And I want to say this morning, the thing we mustn't do is keep it at arm's length. To imagine it's some kind of antiquated story from long ago that look at these primitive people. Haven't we outgrown them? Aren't we so much better than them? Goodness me, we would never do something like that, would we? Because I think what we'll see is incredibly contemporary. It is incredibly relevant for people like us. And yet it is an almighty mess. We're meant to, at this point, even ask rightly whether there is a future for the people of God. Whether the land of promise will be a reality. Whether this whole episode has been a huge mistake. It is that important. It is that serious. As we work our way through the chapter, and we will be going at a fairly high level because there's lots to say, we've got three headings um, to hang our ideas from. One for each, if you like, of the main characters. You can see it there on your um, pink handouts if you have them. My prayer for us this week has been that we will see how vital each of them is for us. Each one is important for us to latch onto and understand and, and grasp for ourselves. We're going to look at Israel's idolatry. We're going to look at God's anger. 
And then Moses' mediation. So firstly, the idolatry. And I think we need to see from the outset, I think the footnote is right here, that this is not the people creating a new deity to worship. Their false worship, I think, is not constructing some sort of newfangled God for them to bow down to, but rather in their impatience for God to reveal himself, they reshape the true God into the kind of God they want him to be. I think that's what's going on. So there's two to four. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing, bring them to me. All the people took off their earrings, brought them to Aaron. He took them, what they handed him, made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fa- fashioning it with a tool and said, these are, these are your gods, or this is your God, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Why a calf? We don't know for sure. I'm not sure it matters that much. I'm told there were cow gods who were worshipped in Egypt. So maybe there's a sense in which they're going back, back to the familiar, a, a kind of blending of their old way of life and their kind of new position in some way, sort of syncretism that happens. But I think the main point to latch onto is that there's all kinds of idolatry out there, all kinds of idolatry in here. Often we think idolatry is is worshipping someone or something, the good things that become too important to us, the good things that become ultimate things and so functionally become the God in my life. It's the, the person, the spouse, the child. or So your, your reality involve, revolves around them. They are the centres. They are the focus. Maybe it's a job or be wanting to perceived in a particular way or wanting popularity or likes or followers or subscribers or grades or whatever that thing is that that we think will provide, whatever the thing is that we think will satisfy, that we need. And so functionally, our life becomes about that thing, those things. They are what matter the most. They are what get us out of bed in the morning. They are the things that dictate how we live. I wonder whether you know yourself well enough to know your tendency towards that thing, whatever that thing is for you. The things that we think will offer us salvation and joy and life. But I think here it's different. This is a different kind of idolatry in Exodus 32. What happens? They they break the first two commandments from just 12 chapters ago. But at root, they have reshaped God into the kind of God they want him to be. They have fashioned him from the gold that was for the tabernacle into a God of their liking. Maybe that sounds a bit weird, but do you know how common that is? I don't so much mean melting down your jewelry, but it's common when someone says, to me, do you know, to me, God is like this. To me, this is what God is like. For me, this is how I like to think about God. This is my truth about God. To me, this is who God is. You heard that? Or maybe even personally, it's when we don't listen to what he says about himself and we try and make him into the kind of God we want him to be. And often that is a God who is like us. 
or a God who is like the culture around us and doesn't really disagree with us. Maybe it's true when in church we, we rewrite doctrines or doctrines are rewritten or when what God has said is airbrushed and softened and reshaped, recast into the kind of God we want. Where bits of the Bible are ignored or argued away or removed, usually to make us a bit less weird and a bit more relevant and a bit more like everyone else, a bit less different. The usual hot topics will be something around the exclusivity of Christ, that Jesus is the only way. Maybe issues of sexuality or gender or marriage, they are often hot topics, particularly so for our season. But then notice what happens as well. It's very interesting. What is seen as good and ethical and right is then reshaped in line with the new God that we make. The morality changes because we've reshaped God. I think you get it in the passage here. So you see, they, they worship their golden calf in new ways, verse 5 and 6. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early, sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Notice how the worship service ends, how their church ends. To put it bluntly, it's, it's food and fornication. It's satisfying human appetites. It's making a God who justifies me living how I want to live, making a God who is happy for me to do what I want. Eating and drinking is pretty simple. Revelry, as we have it here, has kind of sexual overtones. Look back at church history, and you will see whenever there is a re redefinition and a reshaping of God, then that often ends up in a reshaping of sexual morality not being far behind. But when you get to worship a God on your terms and create a God in, of your own making, this is usually where things end up, very often anyway. And I've got friends who have said it. Well, of course, God wants me to be happy. Of course he does. Of course he wants me to flourish. So I'm going to ignore what the Bible says about sex and relationships because how I feel matters more than what God has said. It's incredibly common. Modern Road, I know this is hard and I know it makes us look weird and stand out in ways we don't necessarily want to, but we must be a people who will continue to humbly listen to what God says about himself and trust him. Even if that means patience, holding our nerve, that was a big part of the picture here. Even if that means awkwardness, even if that means we don't get what we want, because what he promises is so much better. And so the people reshape God into the kind of God they want him to be. Maybe your question is, how do we know if we've done this? Or how do, do we know where we've done this even? Probably our issue isn't so much the deliberate decision that I'm going to set out and like the Israelites, mold and make a God who I want. We, we may do that, but probably our issue is bit by bit by bit by bit, our culture squeezes us 
and shapes us and presses us over months and years and decades. It's the frog in the pan of water that doesn't realize it's heating up and it ends up boiled. So the God that we're left with is, has less to do with the Bible and how he's revealed himself and more to do with our world and its desires. How do we know if we are in danger of doing this? Maybe one question to ask is, does my God ever disagree with me? Does God ever disagree with me? Does he challenge my views on things or simply back me up? Or have I so altered and tweaked and shaped him that he's really just about giving me what I want, actually? Maybe even have I, have I created him in my image? It's a heavy one this morning, isn't it? Israel's idolatry, first point. Secondly, God's anger. This next section is shocking. It's meant to shock us. Do you want to know how much, how God feels about idolatry? Do you want to know how much our reshaping of God into the kind of God we want matters to him? Well, these verses show us. Simply put, it, it is so offensive. It matters so much. And so it's a shocking section of verses. We've already seen in previous weeks, God, it must be the one who defines how we worship. He sets the relationship. We can't just approach him on our own terms. That doesn't work. We can't worship him as we want to worship him. That's, that's not what he's like. But it may be that God's reaction seems a bit excessive to you, a bit over the top. I wonder if that's the case, whether we've shrunk down the sinfulness of sin and we've shrunk down the holiness of God. In fact, maybe that's evidence that we've reshaped him into the kind of God that we want him to be. So he doesn't care so much about our personal sin. And really, he's just there to give me what we want. It might be painful, but just have a look and see how he responds. Let these words expand and shape your understanding of the God of the Bible as he's revealed himself. What does God do in response to his people's idolatry? I think at root, he treats them as if they are not his people anymore. And there are four steps, you see that. And the first one is he disowns them. He tells Moses what his people are doing, and then he says, okay, it's game over. Let's, let's press delete. Let's not save the document. Let's just start again. And we'll start again with you, Moses. And he wants to wash his hands of them. And more than that, he even sends a plague on his people. And striking, isn't it? Plagues aren't new things to the book of Exodus. And so as he sends this plague among his people, it's as if they are Egypt. That they want to worship gods like those in Egypt, maybe, then, then I'll treat you like an Egyptian. And I will show you who the true God is. So he threatens to disown them. Then he destroys the commandments, verse 19. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned. And he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. It's not even started, but the covenant well, not properly started, but the covenant with his people 
has ended. The, the 10 words that God wrote with his finger, he smashes. The document is gone for now. Thirdly, he makes them drink the gold. Do you notice that? The golden calf is melted down and the people are to ingest the statue that they've made. Maybe that's, maybe that's kind of partial punishment rather than the, remember the life-giving, pure, healthy water to sustain them. He gives them this horrible, impure, sick and dirty water. It's as if they are drinking the fruit of their idolatry. You want this? You've got it. Maybe it's just simply a way of getting rid of the calf as well. Put bluntly, it will pass through them and it will be removed and dirty and impure. They won't want to collect the gold. Fourthly, he puts to death the unrepentant. Notice that Moses says, who is for the Lord? He's saying, will you turn to him? And so the Levites come, and then from there, they punish a number of the unrepentant with death on the Lord's behalf. This is how much God hates sin. This is how much he hates idolatry. This is what happens when a totally pure and holy God is confronted with evil and false worship. This is what happens when God's people worship him in a way that he's not said. And if that's hard for us, then maybe we don't worship the God of the Bible. Maybe it's more of a golden calf than we reconstructed. Maybe God's, God's holiness has been shrunk right down and our sin has been shrunk right down and we're left with this little God who always agrees with us. What do we do at this point? What do we do when we see the, and know the reality of our sin? When we know and we see something perhaps of the, as Calvin would put it, the idle factories that are our hearts, we're forever constructing and molding and reshaping and running after idols. We, we have this infinite propensity for it. What do we do when we are confronted with the, the reality of that? When we see how Israelite we can be, perhaps? Or thirdly, we look to our mediator. We see Moses mediates. I find it really striking, striking that the Lord tells Moses what he's going to do. He didn't need to do that. He could simply have done it. And yet I think as he shares and he communicates with Moses, he, he draws him in and he draws forth prayers from Moses. As I take it, as with this and similar accounts through the scriptures, this is not really Moses kind of changing the Lord's mind in some way. But a glimpse of the way in God's sovereignty in which he draws us in to his plans and his purposes and he calls forth our obedience and our prayers and our words and our actions and he grows us up. And so Moses mediates for the people. He stands in the gap. He's priestly as he does that. He does it by firstly appealing to what he knows of God. What he knows of God's character. 
have a look at, for example, 32 verse 11. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with a great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent and don't bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and I will give your descendants all this land, I promise. And it will be their inheritance forever. Lord, remember what you've done. Remember what you've promised. Remember who you are. Which for us means as we pray, we pray in line with the things that he's promised. The way in which he's revealed himself, what we know of his character and his purposes, what we know of the things that he cares about. But secondly, and this is really striking, did you notice that in 32 verse 32, Moses offers himself as a sacrifice? But now please forgive their sin, but if not, then blot me out of the book you've written. Punish me in the place of my people. Yes, they're sinful. Yes, they're stupid. No, they don't deserve it. But will you take me instead, says Moses? So what do we do? We look to the better mediator. We look to Jesus, the one who mediates perfectly for us who is forever even now mediating for us at the father's right hand pleading our case pleading the sufficiency of his blood for us because Moses was simply a shadow of someone better to come a better high priest a better mediator he he pointed ahead to this fulfillment in Christ in fact we saw it last time the whole sacrificial system the the tabernacle the temple the priests the offerings the everything the year after year after year of ritual all pointing ahead all pointing ahead as if they were a shadow to to christ the light the fulfillment the sacrifice the answer so we must leave our creative self-shaped gods behind the idols that we impatiently mold, the gods that we think will make us seem a little bit less weird, a little bit more acceptable, because they never provide what they promise. They never satisfy. They never bring life. They never end up delivering. But look to the God of the Bible as he's revealed himself, the God who cares about justice, the God who is good and righteous. And go to Jesus who mediates for us, who brings our forgiveness. For in him and only in him, we will find rest and life. The life that we were made for. Let's pray. And we confess to you, this is a heavy passage in many ways. We confess to you the tendency that we have to to airbrush and to reshape the bits that we find difficult in your words, even in your character. We confess how, how Israelite we can be. And so we see that 
we need a mediator. We need the Lord Jesus because we see that you are rightly angry with us. We thank you for Christ. We thank you that he is enough. We thank you for your love for us revealed in him. Thank you for your patience. In his name we pray. Amen.